Chapter Three of Book Four of Toilers of the Sea, Part Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alison Valdis. Toilers of the Sea, Part Two. Malicious Gilliatt by Victor Hugo. Translated by W. Moy Thomas. Book Four. Pitfalls in the Way. Chapter Three, Another Kind of Sea Combat. Such was the creature in whose power Gilliatt had fallen for some minutes. The monster was the inhabitant of the grotto, the terrible genii of the place, a kind of sombre demon of the water. All the splendours of the cavern existed for it alone. On the day of the previous month, when Gilliatt had first penetrated into the grotto, the dark outline, vaguely perceived by him in the ripples of the secret waters, was this monster. It was here, in its home. When entering for the second time into the cavern in pursuit of the crab, he had observed the crevice in which he supposed that the crab had taken refuge. The pieuvre was there, lying in wait for prey. Is it possible to imagine that secret ambush? No bird would brood. No egg would burst to life, no flower would dare to open, no breast to give milk, no heart to love, no spirit to soar, under the influence of that apparition of evil watching with sinister patience in the dusk. Gilliatt had thrust his arm deep into the opening. The monster had snapped at it. It held him fast, as the spider holds the fly. He was in the water up to his belt, his naked feet clutching the slippery roundness of the huge stones at the bottom, his right arm bound and rendered powerless by the flat coils of the long tentacles of the creature, and his body almost hidden under the folds and cross-folds of this horrible bandage. Of the eight arms of the devilfish, three adhered to the rock while five encircled Gilliatt. In this way, clinging to the granite on the one hand, and with the other to its human prey, it enchained him to the rock. Two hundred and fifty suckers were upon him, tormenting him with agony and loathing. He was grasped by gigantic hands, the fingers of which were each nearly a yard long, and furnished inside with living blisters eating into the flesh. As we have said, it is impossible to tear oneself from the folds of the devilfish. The attempt ends only in a firmer grasp. The monster clings with more determined force. Its effort increases with that of its victim. Every struggle produces a tightening of its ligatures. Juliet had but one resource, his knife. His left hand only was free, but the reader knows with what power he could use it. It might have been said that he had two right hands. His open knife was in his hand. The antenna of the devilfish cannot be cut. It is a leathery substance impossible to divide with the knife. It slips under the edge. Its position in attack also is such that to cut it would be to wound the victim's own flesh. The creature is formidable, but there is a way of resisting it. The fishermen of Sark know this, as does anyone who has seen them execute certain movements in the sea. The porpoises know it also. They have a way of biting the cuttlefish, which decapitates it. Hence the frequent sight on the sea of penfish, pulps, and cuttlefish without heads. 
The cephaloptera, in fact, is only vulnerable through the head. Gilliatt was not ignorant of this fact. He had never seen a devilfish of this size. His first encounter was with one of the larger species. Another would have been powerless with terror. With the devilfish, as with a furious bull, there is a certain moment in the conflict which must be seized. It is the instant when the bull lowers the neck. It is the instant when the devilfish advances its head. The movement is rapid. He who loses that moment is destroyed. The things we have described occupied only a few moments. Gilliatt, however, felt the increasing power of its innumerable suckers. The monster is cunning. It tries first to stupefy its prey. It seizes and then pauses a while. Gilliatt grasped his knife. The sucking increased. He looked at the monster, which seemed to look at him. Suddenly it loosened from the rock its sixth antenna, and darting it at him, seized him by the left arm. At the same moment it advanced its head with a violent movement. In one second more its mouth would have fastened on his breast. Bleeding in the sides, and with his two arms entangled, he would have been a dead man. Gilliatt was watchful. He avoided the antenna, and at the moment when the monster darted forward to fasten on his breast, he struck it with the knife clenched in his left hand. There were two convulsions in opposite directions, that of the devilfish and that of its prey. The movement was rapid as a double flash of lightnings. He had plunged the blade of his knife into the flat, slimy substance, and by a rapid movement, like the flourish of a whip in the air, describing a circle round the two eyes, he wrenched the head off as a man would draw a tooth. The struggle was ended, the folds relaxed, the monster dropped away like the slow detaching of bands. The four hundred suckers, deprived of their sustaining power, dropped at once from the man and the rock. The mass sank to the bottom of the water. Breathless with the struggle, Gilliatt could perceive upon the stones at his feet two shapeless, slimy heaps, the head on one side, the remainder of the monster on the other. Fearing, nevertheless, some convulsive return of his agony, he recoiled to avoid the reach of the dreaded tentacles. But the monster was quite dead. Gilliatt closed his knife. Chapter 4 Nothing is Hidden, Nothing Lost It was time that he killed the devilfish. He was almost suffocated. His right arm and his chest were purple. Numberless little swellings were distinguishable upon them. The blood flowed from them here and there. The remedy for these wounds is seawater. Gilliatt plunged into it, rubbing himself at the same time with the palms of his hands. The swellings disappeared under the friction. By stepping further into the waters he had, without perceiving, approached to the species of recess already observed by him near the crevice where he had been attacked by the devilfish. The recess stretched obliquely under the great walls of the cavern and was dry. The large pebbles which had become heaped up there had raised the bottom above the level of ordinary tides. The entrance was a rather large elliptical arch. A man could enter by stooping. The green light of the submarine grotto penetrated into it and lighted it feebly. It happened that, while hastily rubbing his skin, Gilliatt raised his eyes mechanically. He was able to see far into the cavern. He shuddered. 
he fancied that he perceived in the furthest depth of the dusky recess something smiling. Juliet had never heard the word hallucination, but he was familiar with the idea. Those mysterious encounters with the invisible, which, for the sake of avoiding the difficulty of explaining them, we call hallucinations, are in nature. Illusions are realities, visions are a fact. He who has the gift will see them. Juliet, as we have said, was a dreamer. He had, at times, the faculty of a seer. It was not in vain that he had spent his days in musing among solitary places. He imagined himself the dupe of one of those mirages which he had more than once beheld when in his dreamy moods. The opening was somewhat in the shape of a chalk-burner's oven. It was a low niche with projections like basket-handles. Its abrupt groins contracted gradually as far as the extremity of the crypt, where the heaps of round stones and the rocky roof joined. Juliet entered, and lowering his head, advanced towards the object in the distance. There was indeed something smiling. It was the death's head, but it was not only the head. There was the entire skeleton. A complete human skeleton was lying in the cavern. In such position a bold man will continue his researches. Juliet cast his eyes around. He was surrounded by a multitude of crabs. The multitude did not stir. They were but empty shells. These groups were scattered here and there among the masses of pebbles in irregular constellations. Juliet, having his eyes fixed elsewhere, had walked among them without perceiving them. At this extremity of the crypt, where he had now penetrated, there was a still greater heap of remains. It was a confused mass of legs, antennae, and mandibles. Claws stood wide open. Bony shells lay still under their bristling prickles. Some reversed showed their livid hollows. The heap was like a melee of besiegers who had fallen and lay massed together. The skeleton was partly buried in this heap. Under this confused mass of scales and tentacles, the eye perceived the cranium with its furrows, the vertebrae, the thigh bones, the tibias, and the long-joined finger bones with their nails. The frame of the ribs were filled with crabs. Some heart had once beat there. The green mound of the sea had settled round the sockets of the eyes. Limpets had left their slime upon the bony nostrils. For the rest, there were not in this cave within the rocks either seagulls or weeds or a breath of air. All was still. The teeth grinned. The sombre side of laughter is that strange mockery of expression which is peculiar to a human skull. This marvellous palace of the deep, inlaid and encrusted with all the gems of the sea, had at length revealed and told its secret. It was a savage haunt. The devil fish inhabited it. It was also a tomb in which the body of a man reposed. The skeleton and the creatures around it oscillated vaguely in the reflections of the subterranean water which trembled upon the roof and wall. The horrible multitude of crabs looked as if finishing their repast. These crustacea seemed to be devouring the carcass. Nothing could be more strange than the aspect of the dead vermin upon their dead prey. Juliet had beneath his eyes the storehouse of the devilfish. It was a dismal sight. 
the crabs had devoured the man. The devilfish had devoured the crabs. There were no remains of clothing anywhere visible. The man must have been seized naked. Gilliatt, attentively examining, began to remove the shells from the skeleton. What had this man been? The body was admirably dissected. It looked as if prepared for the study of anatomy. All the flesh was stripped. Not a muscle remained. Not a bone was missing. If Gilliatt had been learned in science, he might have demonstrated the fact. The periostea, denuded of their covering, were white and smooth as if they had been polished. But for some green mould of sea mosses here and there, they would have been like ivory. The cartilaginous divisions were delicately inlaid and arranged. The tomb sometimes produces this dismal mosaic work. The body was, as it were, interred under the heap of dead crabs. Gilliatt disinterred it. Suddenly he stooped and examined more closely. He had perceived around the vertebral column a sort of belt. It was a leathern girdle which had evidently been worn buckled upon the waist of the man when alive. The leather was moist, the buckle rusty. Gilliatt pulled the girdle. The vertebra of the skeleton resisted, and he was compelled to break through them in order to remove it. A crust of small shells had begun to form upon it. He felt it, and found a hard substance within, apparently of square form. It was useless to endeavour to unfasten the buckle, so he cut the leather with his knife. The girdle contained a little iron box and some pieces of gold. Gilliatt counted twenty guineas. The iron box was an old sailor's tobacco box, opening and shutting with a spring. It was very tight and rusty. The spring being, being completely oxidized would not work. Once more the knife served Gilliatt in a difficulty. A pressure with the point of the blade caused the lid to fly up. The box was open. There was nothing inside but pieces of paper. A little roll of very thin sheets folded in four was fitted in the bottom of the box. They were damp, but not injured. The box hermetically sealed had preserved them. Gilliatt unfolded them. There were three banknotes of one thousand pounds sterling each, making together seventy-five thousand francs. Gilliatt folded them again, replaced them in the box, taking advantage of the space which remained to add the twenty guineas, and then reclosed the box as well as he could. Next he examined the girdle. The leather, which had originally been polished outside, was rough within. Upon this tawny ground, some letters had been traced in black, thick ink. Gilliatt deciphered them and read the words, Sieur Clubin. End of chapter 4